you think what we just sang really makes a difference in our lives? No fate I dread, I know I am forgiven, no future sure, the price that has been paid. Does that really affect how we live? Today we'll be looking at the cause of right doctrine, orthodoxy, is, is the effect of right living, orthopraxis, what we've just sung, what we're about to read should make every difference in how we live. Let us pray. Father, as we come to this passage of Hebrews chapter 10, 19 through 25, remind us of who Jesus is, remind us of what Jesus has done, remind us of the truth, cause us to embrace it, work in us that we would be orthodox in our understanding of Scripture. And Father, show us that these glorious truths affect in every way how we are to live, how we are to live out these truths and give us grace to do that, even as we ask for grace to understand your word, that we might embrace it as true and live it out in practice. And we pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So turn with me to Hebrews 10, verses 19 through 25, as we continue this series on the letter to the Hebrews. Therefore, brother, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another to love and good deeds, good works not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Cause and effect. In my introductory physics class many, many years ago, when I was in undergraduate school, very first class, the without a word being spoken, the instructor took a platform that was on rollers, it was just a low platform on the floor, and he sat on it, and he reached beside him and grabbed a huge fire extinguisher, and he put that fire extinguisher between his legs and pointed the nozzle straight out, and he set it off. The physics professor was propelled across the floor of the lecture hall. Didn't have to say much for us to understand that lesson in physics. Cause and effect is the lesson for us today, not jet propulsion. Our text is, is one sentence in the Greek, and it serves as a transition between the more doctrinal part of the letter to the Hebrews now to the more practical aspects. In other words, how does this doctrine that we've been studying, how does that translate into how I live? And you'll hear 
this term over again, orthodoxy must lead to orthopraxis. Right doctrine leads to right living. The cause and effect of the right doctrine about Christ leading to right living for Christ. And that's what we'll be looking at today. Just two points, cause and effect. We'll begin with the first, the cause, the doctrine, the person and work of Christ, orthodoxy, has, has been the focus of the author of Hebrews from chapter 1, verse 1, all the way to chapter 10 and verse 18. Now in chapter 10 and verse 19, we see he begins this very long sentence with the word, therefore. And it indicates that what he's about to say is based on what he has said for nine and a half chapters as he distills nine and a half chapters down to really a few verses, to a summary of what he has taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. Recent trip to South Dakota, Renee and I uh, wanted to visit the Badlands National Park. Have you been to the Badlands? It's bad, but we enjoyed it. It's really beautiful. And in order to get into the Badlands, we had to buy a $20 pass. And the good news about this $20 pass is that it was good for any national park for an entire year which I guess we could go to Hot Springs if they even require a pass to get into the national park there. But I want us to think about the fact, in, in order for us to enter the Badlands, we had to plop down some cash. We had to pay for a pass to enter. Now, I do not want to make light of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ in comparing him to buying a pass to get into the Badlands. But that's exactly what he did. He paid a price for us to, to come into the presence of God without fear. The author has declared the purchase price for this pass in nine and a half chapters. Jesus offered a single sacrifice to once for all remove the barrier of sin between God and his people. Just as a, as a reminder, Hebrews 6, verses 19 through 20, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Then in chapter 9, verse 14, how much more with the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Thus, thus the author calls all believers to confidently approach God by way of this past that has been purchased. Verse 19, entering the holy places by the blood of Jesus. That's the past. Jesus has opened a new way, our author says, by his blood. He has offered a living way by eternally serving as our high priest at the right hand 
of the Father, verse 20. This is a, just a reminder, the, the first covenant, the Old Testament, the Mosaic covenant, legislated the way worshipers were to approach God. And you remember, we've been studying this, continual sacrifices. And in particular, every year on the Day of Atonement, the great high priest going behind that veil, the only time in over the year that anyone could go behind that veil was the high priest, after making atonement for his sin, going behind that veil with the blood of an animal sacrifice to atone for the sins of the people. That was legislated in the Old Testament, in the, in the Mosaic law, and that holy place, and that veil that separated, the, the, the curtain, as we read in verse 20 of Hebrews chapter 10, is, is that veil that kept everyone out from coming into the presence of God in the Holy of Holies, in the most holy place, but the high priest once a year. That veil that we've already read about in chapter 6 and verse 19 and in chapter 9 and verse 3 represented a barrier to God's people coming into his holy presence. And as, again, we have read in Leviticus 16, the only exception was that day of atonement, the high priest bringing in the blood of a goat or an animal. The curtain, according to Hebrews, look at verse 20, symbolized Jesus' flesh, his, his human nature. And the, the significance is that, that Jesus offered up his flesh, his, himself, fully man, offered it to God as a sacrifice on the cross to atone for the sins of his people, to remove that barrier to God's presence. You may, you may recall in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 15, verse 38, that when Jesus died on the cross, what happened? That veil between the holy place and the, and the most holy place in the temple in Jerusalem tore from the top to the bottom in two. Jesus offered himself to remove that barrier by giving his own body once for all to atone for our sin. Notice what Hebrews teaches. Access to God by the blood is a new way. It's, it's distinct from the way of the Old Testament mosaic legislation. It is a single death that brought about atonement, but it's also a living way. Jesus was raised. He ascended to the, to the right hand of the Father. He is serving today as our eternal high priest in heaven. First Peter 3.18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. A new way, a living way for God's people to be in his presence. Jesus has opened this new way and living way. He is serving as our great high priest. So, 
He is in heaven now serving, and he has made a way for us to follow him into God's presence. That is what the author is wanting us to see here. Jesus in heaven is serving, is ministering. We read about this in chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And here's the implication. We are to come confidently into God's presence as we come to corporate worship. Now let me ask you a question. When you came to worship today, and as I came to worship today, did I come to this place of corporate worship consciously thinking I am coming by the blood of Jesus? Did I? Did you? We are to live confidently before him as an act of worship. Not only is this worship coming on the Lord's Day morning, or I don't know, whenever you worship on the Lord's Day, but on the Lord's Day, coming corporately together, that that gathering that God has prescribed in His Scriptures, when we come, we come by His blood. But let me tell you something, worship is also, as we live every day of the week, all of life is worship. And are we worshiping in all of life? Are we living in all of life consciously understanding it's by his blood as we live in the presence of God? When we go to prayer, we have a prayer meeting this Wednesday at 5.30. When we're by ourselves in our prayer closet or our prayer recliner, Are we praying confidently because we consciously are going before the throne of grace in prayer into God's presence by the blood of Jesus? We live before God. We worship before God. We pray before God. We do everything before God before him and and we must understand that as God's people we are in his presence 24/7 by the blood of Jesus the summary assures our high priest is in heaven interceding for us And this summary assures that our high priest who is already in heaven has blazed the trail for us to follow him there. He has opened the way for us to live and move and have our being without fear in the presence of God by his blood. 
What a glorious truth that is. And may we embrace it. And as we embrace it, how, how does this impact how we live? What is the, the, the effect? In, in light of the personal work of Christ, in light of the fact that he is our, 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 our high priest interceding for us in heaven now, he has blazed this trail, he has opened this new and living way for us to follow him there, to be in God's presence, in corporate worship, in, in all of life worship, in prayer, and whatever we're doing, we're, we're in the presence of God by the blood of Jesus. How then should we live, as, as Schaefer said? One day, uh, when I was a little boy, I was out playing in, in the, the shrubbery of, of our home. And I remember, I still remember this very vividly, and I, I probably was just able to walk. And I remember turning around, and right there, right there in my face was this huge garden spider in his web. And it just scared me half to death as a little kid. Well, that has affected me the rest of my life. I mean, if you're at my house and maybe I, I go to the restroom, all of a sudden you hear all this commotion, banging, and, you know, it sounds like World War III has broken out somewhere in, around the bathroom. It's probably because I'm trying to kill a spider in the bathtub. Causes bring about an effect, and sometimes they're lifelong. The impact of the doctrine of the person and work of Christ is to have an effect. And it does have an effect on the rest of our lives. And it's by no means negative. <laughs> In fact, this truth about Jesus, this, this orthodox, this orthodoxy, this, this powerful and positive and glorious truth affects our lives so much that, that it, is to, it is to impact in every way how we live, orthopraxis. The author of Hebrews gives us three, and I'll be brief here, but, but I just want to reflect on these when, when it comes to what effects of this glorious, positive, doctrine have have on us and so look at verse 22 he says we are exhorted in other words what the author is saying this doctrine i've just summarized that i've covered in nine and a half chapters should have this effect on you we're exhorted let us draw near by faith in christ's mediatorial work now the author doesn't say by faith in christ's mediatorial work that's my understanding of it but that's what I believe he's saying is that we are to draw near here in corporate worship we're to draw near in all of life worship we're to draw near in prayer and anything else we're doing 
which by the way, if we view all of life as worship drawing nearer to God, it might really affect what we do and what we don't do, right? So it may not be a, a bad principle to keep in mind as we're challenged to be faithless in this world today. But this truth about Jesus means access to God is no longer restricted. No longer restricted to just one person, the high priest. He says, let us, let all of God's people draw near to God. Why? Because that curtain's been torn into. No longer restricted to one day a year, the day of atonement. No, it's through the work of Christ we have privileged access. We have a, not an annual pass, but an unlimited pass. Not to get into badlands, but to storm the throne room of heaven 24-7. This means we live and move and have our being before the presence of God. This, this means all of life is to be viewed as one big worship service. Corporate worship is distinct. Please understand that. But I believe the Bible teaches all of life is to be viewed as worship, a service to God. And we have access to do that by the blood of Jesus. Here's the qualifier. Who can draw near? The text says, those with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with a heart sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Not all people are to draw near or can draw near. And by the way, not all people who identify as Christians can draw near. There are a lot of people that profess Christ in some way or another or speak of being Christians. There are a lot of churches who call themselves Christian churches that are far from the kingdom of God. Their heart is still a heart of stone. It is not those who identify as Christians, but those who have a true heart. And it's a heart that is sprinkled clean. It is a heart that is inwardly cleansed. Jason read from Ezekiel 36 earlier about, about the true heart. And what God has promised to do in, in, in sprinkling that heart, in taking that old heart of stone that is in every human being by nature, and, and replacing it with, with a heart that's been cleansed with with a beating heart, with a spiritually alive heart, with a new nature, regeneration. And I'll just read two verses, Ezekiel 36, 25 through 26. This is God's promise to his people. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness, from all your idols. I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit and I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. Now, let me just ask you a question today. Has this heart surgery that Ezekiel has talked about here in verse 36 of his prophecy, has this reality of a true heart that the writer of Hebrews uh, talks about here in our passage today, has that inward reality come about in your life? 
now's the day for you to ask that question and seek an answer to it. And if you're not sure, there's a good probability that the answer is, I may not be saved. I may not have a new heart. You could be here saying, I don't want a new heart. I don't buy into this Jesus stuff. This is an opportunity for you. If you're uncertain or if you're just downright antagonistic to what Ezekiel teaches and what the writer of Hebrews teaches about having a new heart that qualifies you to follow Jesus to heaven, it's, this is the day for you to, to deal with that. And I would ask, if you have a question about that, to talk to me. Talk to Derek. We've got a session. We've got great elders here who can, who, who can talk with you without judgment. Talk with you about what it means to have a saving relationship with Jesus. Because that's what it takes to draw near to God. Would you do that? Would you consider the state of your heart? Now, now why am I talking? I, I know most of you. I know most of you fairly well, and I, and, I, and I know you're saved. But yet the church is mixed with believers and unbelievers. It was in the Old Testament, it is in the New Testament. And while I can't be 100% sure of any other person's status of their heart, what I am sure of is Jesus says, I will sprinkle clean your heart. I will give you a new heart, and you will follow me to heaven and live and move and have your being in the presence of God without fear. The person who has this unrestricted access to God by the blood of Christ is one who has been inwardly cleansed by his blood and thus united to him in saving faith. This inward cleansing is pictured outwardly the sacrament of baptism. The author says, and our bodies washed. The outward doesn't bring the inward, but the outward symbolizes what God has done inwardly. We are to live by faith in Christ in full assurance that his work, his blood, has inwardly cleansed our hearts and removed the barrier of sin to God's presence. What a joy. All of life is worship. We are called to worship corporately. And how are we to live lives of worship and come into God's presence for the Lord's Day worship? By drawing near to God, ever trusting in Jesus. That's true of every one of us here today. We're also exhorted to hold fast to a confession of our hope. That is, hold fast on a confession that is based on the truth about Christ. And then in verse 23, without wavering. Now we're exhorted a fourth time in Hebrews to hold fast, to stand firm, to, to embrace orthodoxy, the orthodox teaching concerning the work of Christ. And the context of this letter is instructive. The original recipients were being pressured to turn from trusting in Jesus and revert back to Judaism. And so he exhorted them 
now four times to keep placing their confidence in Christ by knowing who Christ is and what Christ has done by knowing the truth. How can we have confidence in something we don't know and something we don't believe is true? And so the author says, hold fast to this truth. It's key to not wavering. The author is reminding us that orthodoxy leads to orthopraxis. If one wavers on the truth, one's life will stumble into compromise and apostasy. That is a guarantee. We hold fast to the truth because we know the truth. We can hold fast to a sinking ship. And many believers are doing so today in churches and denominations that have compromised on right teaching, on right doctrine. Just about every heresy of which I'm familiar with has some distortion of the person and work of Christ. This is why the author of, and, and what the, the original recipients of this letter were struggling with was you know, is Christ really who the Bible says he is? And has he done really what the, what the apostles, the gospel says he has done? In other words, they were struggling with this matter of orthodoxy concerning Christ. We must, and I want to say this, that we need to hold to a ship that's not sinking. We need to hold to the truth. We, we need to be orthodox. We need to rightly teach the Bible. We, we must give ourselves to being orthodox, endeavoring to grow in our knowledge of the truth. And in light of that truth, let us hold fast to the biblical teaching of the person and work of Christ and not waver. That's how we should live based on what this summary has summarized. The truth about Christ has a powerful, positive, and glorious effect on how we live because we're also part of a loving community of believers. Look at verses 24 through 25. We're exhorted to consider. Firstly, we're exhorted to stir up. Secondly, thirdly, we're exhorted not to neglect meeting together. And I'll be quick here. We are exhorted to consider one another. That is, think about one another. Our focus needs to be other-centered, not self-centered. We need to think of others and not only about ourselves. We are, we are to consider others more. We are to love our brothers and sisters. And we are to stimulate them to spiritual growth. We are to promote them to love. We are to encourage them to minister. And here's a question for us. Is our behavior provocative? That's what it means to stir up, is to provoke, to incite. Are we provoking and inciting one another to love and good works, to spiritual growth? May we consider how to do that more here. And one way is that we're doing it now as we gather for corporate worship. There's a dynamic here where we are provoking, we're, we're inciting one another to, to worship God, to sing his praises, to hear his word, to come before the table. We are exhort, exhorted to store, store up, to provoke. We're exhorted not to neglect meeting together as we are doing now so that we might encourage one another. I mean, this, this exhortation implies 
some were neglecting meeting together. And some of us are neglectful in meeting together. You know, we hear about the church on decline today. Let me just say this, that one who is neglectful in gathering with the saints more than likely has a deficient view of the person and work of Christ. That's, that's really what the author is telling us here. That if we have a robust Christology, that's the doctrine of Christ, we will not neglect meeting together with the saints, with our brothers and sisters in Christ. We're not to do the Christian life solo. The quickest way to abandon Christ is to try to do the Christian life on your own. Please do not take that advice, but I think that's true. We're not saved on an island, but in a community. We need one another. We need one another. We're called to gather as a, as a community every Lord's Day for corporate worship, the highlight of the week. Meeting together means fellowship, covenant groups meeting, small groups meeting, Bible studies meeting. There we stir one another up. We incite one another to learn God's word. We incite one another to, to love. Uh, think of all the dynamics that, that happen. We, we need to come alongside one another, encourage one another, re ready to meet one another's needs. Care for one another. Verses 24 and 25 just speak directly to us about one of the practical implications of a robust Christology is that we just love being with God's people. And we think first about God's people, not ourselves. And we think about how we can stir God's people up to grow spiritually, to love Jesus more and love one another more. And the farthest thing from our mind is to neglect being with God's people. The cause of right doctrine, orthodoxy, is the effect of right living, orthopraxis. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we ask you to work in our lives today and pray that, that we would just embrace this high, glorious doctrine of Christ that we find in your word and especially here in Hebrews, and that we would heed the exhortations of the writer, your instrument, speaking to us, that we would consider one another, that we would stir up one another, and that we would not neglect meeting together. May our life reflect the person and work of Jesus Christ in these ways, I pray. Amen.